0: Matthew's Gospel, uh, is divided into, there are five main chunks of Jesus' te- teaching. Um, the first one, of course, is the very famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, and at the end of each of those chunks, it has a little formula. When Jesus finished saying these things. And uh, you can tell when you've come to the end of that, uh, of that section with that little f- phrase, um, so this section is kind of from about chapter 21 through to the end of chapter 25. Uh, a lot of t- Jesus' teaching, it's in his final week. So it's after the entry to Jerusalem and it's before uh, the, the Palm Sunday and a bit before the Last Supper. So it's that week. Uh, and, and usually at Easter we, we only focus on the Passion story, don't we? The events of Maundy Thursday, uh Good Friday, and then Easter Day. We focus on that in that week. Whereas this great big chunk of Jesus' teaching, which we don't have time to deal with uh, in, in, in Holy Week, but that's, that's where it actually belongs. So um, we uh, have here a series of three parables, and last week Mike, um, Mike dealt with the first parable, which is about the, the obedient and the disobedient son, and uh and then he looked at the parable of the of the of the tenants in in the vineyard and uh, if you if you didn't uh, hear that sermon there are printed copies actually mike's very well organized uh, there's a very good printed notes and also it's on the on the website you can you can listen to that and uh, in it mike explains that uh, there were both parables about the disobedience of israel Israel had been called and chosen by God and, uh, and yet time and time again they disobeyed him and eventually in those parables the vineyard is given to other people, other tenants and that actually is you and me. We've all been included now in the ownership of that uh, or, the, or the stewardship of that of that vineyard. So they're the first two parables, and the one we're looking at today, number three, is about the the wedding banquet. Uh, It's quite a familiar familiar parable. Um, So God, uh, he he begins with this little formula as well, the kingdom of heaven is like. So Matthew, uh, Jesus is trying to tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's very hard to describe the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? How do you describe something so, so wonderful? Well, Jesus' method was to tell lots of stories, lots of parables, uh, to try to illustrate the different facets of what this kingdom of heaven is actually like. So God has moved in these parables. In the first parable of the obedient son, God is a father with the sons, the obedient, the disobedient son. In the second parable, he is uh, the, the landowner of a vineyard. He owns, he's the creator, isn't he? He owns the, the whole business, the whole shop, and he has lent it to us. And now in this third parable, he's the king. He's the king, and his son's getting married, and he's inviting, uh, all the guests to that wedding. I mean, um, maybe it would be a different invite list to Harry and Meghan. Um, but he certainly invited all of the people of Israel. They were the, they were the invited people who were chosen to go to this wedding and, uh, and and enjoy the banquet. So, when the time came, the banquet is ready, he sends his servants to invite people. Now, who would the servants have been, do you think? Let's see if you're awake here. Who, who were the servants that he sent to invite people to the wedding? The prophets, yeah, the prophets all the way through the Old Testament, Moses, and right the way through all the prophets. Uh, many of them are pointing to um, this, this banquet that's going to happen and uh, to invite everyone to come. And uh, during the period in, 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 the, in the Promised Land, the judges and the kings and all those people were supposed to point people to God the king and invite people to come to his banquet. But... The people refused to come, and the word actually refused. The tense of that word it was in what's called the imperfect, which means they repeatedly refused to come. This is not just a one-off rejection of God. This is over and over and over again. In fact, if you if you if you read through the Old Testament, you know some people say that the Old Testament God is a harsh. Uh, and a a kind of um, rather merciless God. But if you have a look at it from God's perspective, he's a patient, waiting, loving father who is longing for his children to obey him. But over and over and over again, right the way from Genesis chapter 3, right the way through to the end of Malachi, the people disobey. And and yet God is, is still loving them and still inviting them Um, But there comes a point when actually uh, his patience runs out and he has to uh, try something more drastic. Now, I want to ask this question. Why would you refuse an invitation to eat? I mean, if you're going to get invited to a great nosh-up, you know, uh, why would you refuse that? Now, I can understand the previous parable. Uh, I mean, you know, when my dad used to tell me to do things, I didn't always want to do them you know uh, and the one and the other one you know the workers in the vineyard people are a bit lazy they don't always want to work they want to get something for nothing especially nowadays people seem to want to become rich for not doing very much and and so the workers in the vineyard decide to kill uh, the servants and take the vineyard over themselves and you know i can understand that to a certain extent but why would you refuse to go to a banquet a free meal And that's what it is. It's a free banquet provided by God. And yet people have still refused to go. Strange, isn't it? And so, um, God sends more servants. So who do you think the more servants might be? Sort of. Us, possibly. Uh, I think, actually, we're going to come on to that. But before that, after the prophets came, possibly, I mean, this is only conjecture, probably John the Baptist. I think probably John the Baptist was, he was the last prophet, really, that uh, he was the kind of one who stood in the gap between the Old and the New Testament, didn't he? The last prophet and the forerunner of the Messiah. God sent John the Baptist, and what did they do to him? The leaders didn't listen to him, the ordinary people did. Uh, and then eventually uh, Herod has him executed and, uh, and badly treated. And then, of course, the final servant is not only a servant but a son. And eventually, uh, you can get a bit confused here because actually the king's inviting people to the banquet with, of his son. But in, in one sense, Jesus is also a servant who came uh, to point to that banquet, isn't he, as well as the son. He, he fulfills both roles. So, uh, God sends these final group of servants, John the Baptist, followed by Jesus, and people ignored them. They said, oh, I've got business to carry out. I've, I've just got married, so I've got to go and be with my wife, or I've got, uh, you know, bought a new car, I've got to go and try it out. Whatever it might be, they had excuses rather than go to the banquet. But others, not only didn't ignore them, but actually ill-treated and killed so, if someone comes to you, to you and invites you to a banquet, you don't kill them, do you? Where's the logic in that? I, I just can't understand it. So the king, uh, the king is enraged. Uh, and uh, I mean, God, we need, we need to forget that. God actually, there is a wrathful side to God as well. He is a God of love, but things make him angry. Even though we might be loving parents, sometimes things make us angry. And uh, he is so, uh, he's so enraged that he sends his army to destroy their city. And of course, we know that actually happened in AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And uh, the only bit that's left at the moment is the remainder of that, uh, the, the Wailing Wall. Uh, so God actually had to execute some kind of uh, punishment. But then the king sends yet more servants. And who are these? Well, I think Mary's right. I think we're now moving to the to the New Testament time, and, and the servants who are now sent out uh, are you and me, the apostles and their successors, to go out and invite people to take part in this great banquet, which is called uh, the Gospel. Um, notice um, we're now looking to the future we 've gone beyond a d seventy we 're looking now to the present and the future uh, rather than looking back to the past of all that stuff israel did we 're looking forward who to invite to your banquet? everyone and anyone everyone is invited to this banquet and it, and just to kind of underline that, the good and the bad if you were planning a a, a wedding for your for your daughter or your son uh, who would you invite? You really wouldn't want to invite the riffraff, would you? But actually, God, the king here, has invited everyone, both good and bad. And that's because God is a God of grace and mercy and generosity. And notice that he says about the first invites, they did not deserve to come. And we need to not forget that. The people of Israel did not deserve any special favor. They only had grace. God loved them because he had chosen them. It was his idea to, cho- to choose a new people based on Abraham. And that was God's wonderful saving idea. They didn't deserve it. And their actions, many of them, showed why they didn't deserve it. Now notice that the parable echoes some of the themes of the previous parables. Um, let's just have a look. The, the, the inviting people uh, and trusting people and giving them a chance and then uh, they, they turn it round against the king. Or they turn it round against the landowner or the son disobeys his father. Um, there are similar themes in all of these parables but it now extends from the vineyard which is an earthly kingdom It's now extending the kingdom to the kingdom banquet, which is a heavenly kingdom. It's now moving from the past to the future and the end times and the present times. And the theme that comes through, though, is not new. If you've got your Bible, perhaps you'd like to have a look at Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. So this, don't forget, is written something like 700 years before Jesus came. I'll read it out. On this mountain, which is Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. That's great, isn't it? A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And then in that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. That's a wonderful image of the banquet, the messianic banquet that God has prepared, predicted 700 years before Jesus came. And surely uh, these parables are picking up that theme. Isaiah 55, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink. There's another invitation to anyone to come to drink from this banquet. And then, of course, the Passover supper. Was the most important meal in the whole of the Jewish calendar, when they rec- recognised and remembered the rescue from e- from Egypt, um, a regular Passover. And Jesus came and took that Passover and made it into the Lord's Supper. So he he is therefore giving the Passover a future dimension as well as looking as looking back. This is. The messianic banquet. That's, that's a kind of a bit of a posh word. A banquet called for the Messiah. And the word Messiah simply means anointed one, the king. So the banquet of the king. Who is the king? Well, if we look back earlier in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is questioned, um, about why his disciples don't fast, uh, or why they're still feasting rather than fasting, um, Um, yes, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. I am the one for whom this banquet is being prepared. In other words, he's saying, I am the Messiah. The messianic banquet is all about me. And to this banquet, all of Israel were invited, although many refused. Believers are invited to become the guests at the banquet. And if you remember last week, Mike was talking about the true uh, believers as opposed to the builders. The builders were the kind of rulers of Israel who were trying to construct some kind of... uh, Religion, But actually the believers are simply people who believe in Christ and are accept the invitation to come. We become the guests at the banquet. But we become more than that. If Jesus is the bridegroom, we are the bride. Now, chaps, that sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Um, but the church... God's chosen people um, is described as the bride of the bridegroom. So we're not just guests. We're invited as the bride. Now, I've done most things at weddings. I've been a a bridegroom once. I've been a best man two or three times. Uh, I've conducted probably about 20 or so weddings in my ministry. Um, I've played music at a wedding. I have... um, um, I've been a photographer at a wedding quite a lot of times. So I've done all those kind of things, but I've never been a bride or a bridesmaid. Um, but actually, uh, you know, um, you can be a bride. Because we are all the bride of Christ. So when people ask that difficult question about whether I will see my husband or my wife in, in heaven, Jesus answers, you, have misunderstood the scriptures that people don't get married in heaven because everyone is the bride of Jesus. So we're all married to Jesus in, in that kind of sense. It's a wonderful picture. Um, you know the, um, the kind of old, old adage, three times a bridesmaid, never a bride. Well, if that applies to you, don't worry. Uh, In heaven, we are all the bride of Christ. And we have something to look forward to. The wonderful banquet. And we're sitting on the top table. Yeah, isn't that good? You know, you have the top table, then the ordinary guests, and and, you know, on, on, on the other tables. No, we're all on the top table with the bridegroom. Isn't that fantastic? And then we come to those rather difficult verses. Now, Only Matthew has got this bit in verses 11 to 14. Luke tells the same story, but he doesn't have this bit about the man without the wedding clothes. Only Matthew tells us that part of the story. Uh, As all these people uh, are invited, the guests or the bride, whatever, um, there's a man without wedding clothes. It seems incredibly harsh and unfair, doesn't it? that having been invited and having gone to all that trouble to go out into the street corners and drag people into the wedding, uh, let, just to say you go out and drag some homeless people in from the streets of Taunton into your banquet, and then you say, you can't come in here, you haven't got clothes to wear. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Like, that surely can't, the king would not have invited people and then kicked them out because they were poor. That seems to go against everything that God stands for. But there is there is a dress code. Uh, and the dress code for Harry and Meghan's wedding was for ladies a day dress and a hat. And for gentlemen it was a lounge suit or a morning suit. Well that's okay because most chaps have got a suit somewhere even if you've got the one uh, you've had for 50 years. You know, it is possible to go to the royal wedding without having to be extortionately rich, isn't it? But actually um, it does seem... It does seem a bit harsh to kick this man out of the wedding. But it's all about righteousness. Do you see? The people that were invited were the good and the bad. And you wouldn't really want bad people at your wedding, would you? You'd only want good people. But this understanding of the robe of righteousness that God provides means that whether you're good or bad, you are counted righteous if you're wearing that robe. If you're wearing the right clothes for the wedding, it's not about covering up because I mean, you know, we can all put a suit on and impress the bank manager. Well, we used to be able to do that. (laughs) You can't even see the bank manager now. But you know, but it is interesting that people wearing suits tend to get better better um, response uh, when you know when they approach someone than someone wearing casual things. There's something about that. But actually, um, listen to what it says in Revelation. Chapter 19. So we're going right to the end of the Bible now. Um, Revelation chapter 19. There's a wonderful passage in here. And verse 8 says this. It says, or verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So this wonderful messianic banquet that's going to happen uh, at, at the end of at the end of time, all the saints are invited, but they're given righteous clothes to wear. It's righteousness which we wear, rather than the latest designer clothes to impress somebody. Um, Fine linen given to the saints to wear. We are good and bad. All of us have got good and bad in us, but there is a process of sanctification of making us holy and justified in the right of Jesus. So the righteous acts are not because they're particularly righteous people, but because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, which is the old-fashioned phrase, isn't it? Washed in the blood of the Lamb. And uh, I can never understand that because if I get blood on my shirt, I've got to put it in the cold water to stop it staining. But, you know, actually the blood of the Lamb, of Jesus, makes us clean. It doesn't stain. It makes us clean. It wipes away our sin. So we have righteous clothing to put on. And a few weeks ago, John preached uh, on Colossians chapter 3. And, uh, and just took this very image of the fact that we take off the dirty clothes, we put on the new ones. And I well remember your RAF uniform that felt uncomfortable, but it was uh, actually what to be in the RAF you wear the uniform. To be in the wedding banquet, you wear the uniform, which is the, the robes of righteousness. Mm. So the good and bad don't deserve to come, but they are invited and wedding clothes are provided. So that makes it a bit better, doesn't it? We don't feel quite so bad about this man who gets chucked out, presumably because he refused to wear those clothes. I don't think it will be about ignorance or poverty. It will be because he refused to put on the right clothes for the wedding. And I'm sure the BBC, if they found someone in that royal wedding who wasn't wearing the right clothes, they would have discreetly blocked them out somehow. I don't know. Let's just have a look at this very last sentence. The last sentence in Matthew 22, 14. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Well, let's just have a look, just a little bit more detail at those words. Many. Now, you'll know this. uh, The Greek word for many is poly. So, you know, you've got um, polythene, it's got a multiple... A, a, anything with poly in it means uh, many. It, um, if, you, if you go to, to Greece, there's, there's a very useful little phrase you can use. It's polykala. Everything's good. So, polykala, everything's good, um, is quite useful. It's like kind of no worries kind of thing. Um, the other word, few, do you know what that is? Oligo. So, an oligarch is somebody where the power is resting with a few. So oligarchs are just a small number of extraordinarily rich people who exercise power. So the word poly means many, but it can also mean everyone. So if I say polycola everything is good. Uh, and f- oligo, few are chosen. Now this word is, is not meant to emphasize the small number of people who, who are saved. Uh, you know, if you, if you talk to um, our friends, we'll know about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they, they have this kind of belief, uh, that only a certain number of people are saved. Well, um, that's not what this is meant to be. It's meant to be, em- it's not emphasizing the smallness of the number, but it's contrasting it with the number called. Everyone is called. Everyone is invited, but only a few, only a smaller number actually accept the invitation. So, you know, this idea of God who, who, who calls some and, and, and damns others, that doesn't work with this verse. Everybody is invited. If they don't come, if they don't wear the right clothes, it's their choice. And God didn't go, oh, the king did not go after the person who said, I'm going to go off on my business. He just let him go. So here's the question Have you accepted the invitation? If the invitation is to everyone to attend this wonderful banquet, have you accepted the invitation? The second question is, if you've accepted it, are you wearing the wedding clothes, the robes of righteousness? Or are you hoping that your old suit is going to do? Even if you took it to the dry cleaners, it won't do. You've actually got to wear the robe of righteousness that God provides. And then the third question is this. Are you handing out the invitations? Or do people out there think that coming into the kingdom, uh, being a Christian is just for for them? Or do they realize actually that they're invited too? And people have got all sorts of reasons why they might refuse that invitation. And I think uh, evangelism is very hard in our society because people think they've got everything. They think that they are good enough. And they don't need this crutch of Christianity. But actually, what they don't realize is that they do need the robe of righteousness, and it's free. And the invitation is made to them, as it is to us. So there's a challenge there, both for us in accepting this invitation, and, and us in our outreach, in our willingness. Do we talk? I mean, we've got these lovely papers that Peter's got. Maybe there are opportunities for, um, us to invite people, and, and, We do that in a natural kind of way. I'll just finish with this. There used to be um, a training thing called um, Good News Down the Street. Did you ever come across that? It was back in the 1980s when Karen and I hadn't been married very long, and it was a training program that came to the churches to get people out sharing the gospel. And there were some wonderful, funny sketches in it uh, which showed how it shouldn't be done. And there's one occasion about a man who's knocking on doors in your street and a man knocks on the door, and the, the, the household is up in the loft. So this, this man, the evangelist, comes in, and he climbs up the loft ladder, and, and he pokes his head into the loft, and there's a man sorting out his loft, and he says, have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? Now, of course, we know what that means, but this chap hasn't got a clue. And it was just demonstrating how when we do invite people. Are we using language that people understand? Are we being real and uh, and authentic? Or are we just uh, expecting people to understand something which they've got no idea about? But anyway, there is an invitation that needs to go out, and the servants today are us. And I suggest that we just are quiet now, and uh, we might uh, just pray. Let's uh, have a few minutes of silence. If anyone wants to pray... Out loud, that's fine. If you'd like to pray quietly, uh, that's absolutely fine as well.